Good evening and welcome to Conquer Tarlson tonight. So, let's say you wanted to humiliate the US. Say you wanted to put on stilettos and fishnets and squish the balls of the nation beneath your heel, while telling them they've been very, very bad. Say you wanted to dress the nation in only a speedo and put it in a cage, and then put on a cat mask and taunt the republic, like Doja Cat does in her video for Go To Town. Say you wanted to tweak the nipples of the United States, and make it wear a diaper, and say to it, Bad baby, you're a gross bad baby, why did you do to your diapy? Say you wanted to dom the nation psychologically, so you lead it into your bedroom, and tie the country's arms and feet to the posts of the bed, and then leave the room for an indeterminate amount of time, thus leaving the tied-up body politic wondering when, or even if, you'd come back? And then, after doing a couple errands, you came back 45 minutes later and berated the US about being a weak, pathetic dirty, filthy boy who needs to be punished? Say you, um, say you wanted to do all that? To, uh, to the country. Um, well, then, you'd probably do something similar to what Press Secretary Psycho did to me the other night in a penthouse suite at the DC Marriott. But I digress. Tonight we have a very special guest to join us in the studio, my own piss pig alter ego Trucker Charleston. Trucker, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me Cucker. Trucker, what would you do to a bad dirty pathetic boy, I mean nation, if you wanted to humiliate and degrade it? Well Cucker, what I do first is play flirtatious mind games with the US state, by running my fingers through its hair, and then grabbing a handful and pulling just a little, in order to gently imply a threat, and thus arouse the confederation. Then, I'd give the American government a proper spanking and tell them, this is what looking at your sexy ass makes me do. Then, I'd do the equivalent of pulling out of Afghanistan just before 9-11 which would be to alternately rub sensuously and then firmly spank the country's buttocks. In order to titillate the nation, by alternating pleasure with pain. Correct, Cucker. It's important to keep a naughty boy on his toes when you are doming him. I mean, um, the way the Taliban is doming President Vibin right now, of course. Makes sense to me, Trucker. Part of the thrill, er, I mean humiliation, of submitting is to have your attention snapped back by a little pain just as you're beginning to fully relax. Which is why, if I were, um, the Taliban, now would be the time I'd stuff a pair of undies into the mouth of the United States, and tell them repeatedly how dirty and filthy they are, and ask them why they are eating their own underwear. Absolutely. Essentially, what the Taliban is doing now is brandishing a pair of fuzzy handcuffs, and presenting the US with various ropes for use in bondage scenarios. So. What you're saying then Trucker, is that President Vibin and by extension the nation of the US, is essentially suspended naked via elaborate rope knots, with its hands cuffed, and its undies stuffed in its mouth, while we are told again and again how soiled, pitiful and unclean we are. That's correct Cucker. What a risque and salacious time to be an American. I feel downright lascivious and orgiastic about it Trucker. Well, that's it for Cucker Tarlson tonight. Join us next week for a recap and commentary on the closed-circuit camera footage of Mayor Pete licking ice cream at local supermarkets while in the grips of an MKUltra-triggered psychotic break. Until then, stay frisky America, good night. world to barbarian noetics the podcast dedicated to the elevation of the human spirit and to resisting the status quo
I am an extremely luminous active galactic nucleus, also known as a quasar, and specifically I am quasar J1342928. They're getting very creative at the quasar naming factory. Goddamn, can do a little better than that astronomers. <laughs> I was discovered on uh, in December of 2017 and I was found emitting light more than 13 billion light years from Earth. 13 billion light years from Earth. I appeared in the universe only 690 million only, <laughs> only 690 million years after the Big Bang. And I can emit energies of billions or even trillions of electron volts. This energy exceeds the total of the light of all the stars within a galaxy. Quasars, like myself, are the brightest objects in the universe. They shine anywhere from 10 to 100,000 times brighter than the Milky Way. Quasars, baby. They're not fucking around. And as always, I am your loyal host, Conan Tanner. Welcome back to the BMP, everybody. Thank you so much for joining in. I appreciate you. I appreciate you choosing to integrate me into your day. I do not, do not take it for granted. Thank you so much for listening, for supporting, for spreading the word about the show. Shout out to my patrons. Y'all are the pigmentation in my colored pencils and the tourmaline in my ceremonial obelisk. I could not do it without you. Thank you so much. So I'm coming at you from a hot and sunny Friday afternoon here in South Phoenix, and I'm very excited to present part two of my conversation with the legendary Lubomir Arsov, visionary animator, renowned storyboard artist, all-around amazing person, and also down-to-earth dude. Really, really appreciate Lubomir hopping on the podcast, sharing his insights with us. And so this is part two of our chat, and we talk about all sorts of stuff. Just a few of the topics uh, we cover are the, we dive into the nature of hidden malignant intelligences uh, that Lubomir refers to as aggregores that seem to feed off the ignorance, fear, anger, and lower energies, lower frequencies of humanity. So that's interesting. <laughs> but then we also talk about that sacred spark of the divine within every living thing, including human beings. Even repugnant human beings have that sacred spark of the divine. We talk about the powerful impulse of, of what can only be called goodness and light that seems to be pulsing through humanity in this time as we speak and giving us strength so we can face our collective darkness, this darkness of modernity, with courage and confidence so that ultimately we can emerge literally a, a new species and build a more just and egalitarian world. So I'm not going to give away anything else. You're just going to have to tune in to listen to the chat. Once again, heartfelt thank you to Lubomir. Um, check, check out Lubomir, if you haven't already, which I assume you have, but check out his short film In Shadow, Lubomir Arsov In Shadow. And you can find him on Instagram at Lubomir Arsov, all one word. And uh, definitely follow him and support his work. He is, uh, I won't give it away, but he's working on some really exciting projects that he, he um, unveils to us at the end of the conversation. So definitely someone you should keep up with. I'm glad he's out there doing what he's doing, shedding light on things that need shed need light to be shed on them. 
And uh, without further ado, I said I wasn't going to say without further ado anymore. In a hop, skip, and a jump, we're going to get into this conversation, part two of my conversation with the legendary animator Lubomir Arsov. I'll talk to you guys at the end. Much love. Peace. jokes about white people, you say white people this, white people that. What if I did something like that, huh? What if I got on stage and I said, yeah, black people are like this, Muslims are like that. You'd probably call me a racist, wouldn't you? And I say, yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, you should, you should never do that. That's, that's bad for your health. They're like, well, you do that, Amir. You do that, you get on stage, Make jokes about white people? Don't you think that's a kind of racism? Don't you think that's... Dun, dun, dun. Reverse racism. I said, no, I don't think that's reverse racism. Not because, not because I think reverse racism doesn't exist, right? If you ask some black and brown people, they'll tell you flat out, there is no such thing as reverse racism. I don't agree with that. I think there is such a thing as reverse racism. And uh, I, could be, I could be a reverse racist if I wanted to. Uh, all I would need would be a uh, time machine, right? And uh, what I'd do is I'd get in my time machine, I'd go back in time to before Europe colonized the world, right? And uh, I'd convince the leaders of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America to uh, invade and colonize Europe, right? Just occupy them, steal their land and resources, set up some kind of like, I don't know, trans-Asian slave trade where we exported white people to work on giant rice plantations in China. Just ruin Europe over the course of a couple of centuries so all their descendants would want to migrate out and live in the places where black and brown people come from. But of course, in that time, I'd make sure I set up systems that privilege black and brown people at every conceivable social, political and economic opportunity. White people would never have any hope of real self-determination. Just every couple of decades, make up some fake war as an excuse to go and bomb them back to the Stone Age and say it's for their own good because their culture is inferior and just for kicks. 
subject white people to coloured people's standards of beauty so they end up hating the colour of their own skin, eyes and hair. If, after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of that, I got on stage at a comedy show and said, hey, what's the deal with white people? Why can't they dance? That would be reverse racism. You have reached the voicemail of... Oh, uh, hey, this is Dan Dingleberry's voicemail here, Regional Marketing Director of BMP Corporate. Uh, go ahead and leave a message after the beep and uh, have a rise and grind day. Oh, hey, Dan. Hey, this is uh, Conan. I got your message about the National Bosses Day celebration bonanza at the... Innovation Zone. Uh, it sounds great. Sounds riveting. So uh, you wanted a segment for Barbarian Noetics Chief Executive Officer Stanky Pickles. So I went ahead and recorded the segment. Um, there's going to be uh, I I left it on this voicemail so you could listen to it first, and uh, I, I went ahead and sent a wave file over too. So I guess I'll see you at Boss's Day. And uh, here's my segment for Stanky. All right. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Stanky. This is Conan. Hey, happy National Bosses Day, Stankster. Uh, super proud of you for stashing all that cash in the Cayman Islands. I was thinking CEO, you know, as we know, it stands for Chief Executive Officer, but, you know, it may as well stand for some other acronyms. I was thinking possibly cocky, egomaniacal, oaf. Or maybe cancerous ecosystem oppressor. Or maybe even C for cheating, E for everyday people, and O for out of their money. You see, Stanky, if all the world's CEOs evaporated tomorrow in a cathartic, angelic gust of purifying wind, the world would be much better for it. People would celebrate in the streets the day the CEOs died. The workers would have parties, potlucks, ceremonies, and orgies in honor of the complete and utter elimination of all CEOs. So this boss's day, my hope for you, Stanky Pickles, CEO of Barbarian Noetics Corporate, this boss's day, I hope you die a horrible death. Happy National Bosses Day. All right, Conan out.
life. And I just, yeah, I think that was really cool too. <laughs> um, so as the, the, the scenes kind of, they build on themselves. Oh, I also wanted to ask you really quick, how did you choose the music? Because the music is extremely effective. Well, I had some inspiration. I, I mostly wrote the short to a track by Carbon Life Based Lifeforms. Uh, it's called, the track is called MOS, uh, 98. I forget there's a series of numbers after it. Okay. And so, um, after that, I basically hired, based on that vibe, I couldn't get the rights to the song. Um, I, one of my friends and his musical partner, I basically tapped them to do, um, to do the soundtrack for me. Okay. And the way it worked is, um, yeah, I just gave them a certain vibe that I wanted. Um, I, I described, I described to them what I wanted the audience to feel. A certain progressive, uh, melancholy, but that had a deeper awareness and a deeper knowledge to it. And yeah. that's to cradle hypnotically the audience into, um, through, throughout the journey. So they actually did a really good job. Um, yeah. In a very short amount of time within, you know, we mapped out just like storytelling wise where we wanted certain breaks and certain, uh, crescendos, etc. So yeah, they did an excellent job. Uh, but it was basically the aesthetic was based on some of my favorite music, which is ambient, uh, space and dark ambient kind of, uh, sonic journeys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they did an incredible job. It's just the absolute perfect soundtrack to the film. Um, as the scenes progress in the film, uh, there's a repeating image of people having their heart and they're blown out and their heads blown out. And everything is kind of getting sucked up throughout the entire film. Um, and eventually, every, literally everything gets, gets kind of sucked up. But I wanted to ask you about what that kind of, so I guess in order to ask this question properly, I have to fast forward to, there's kind of like an apex point of, at least for the material aspect of things getting sucked upwards. And it, there's, basically like a huge uh, uh, sphere and the uh, walls of the sphere are all screens and there's other symbology with the screens that we'll get to later and then that is being guarded by like armies and bombs and tanks and, and there's a very like nuclear weapon vibe and all that force guarding it's all around this group of beings that are kind of at the very top after you watch all these things get kind of blown out and and move up and move up and move up this is kind of like the apex of of that these these beings and they're all like looking at something and they're deformed and grotesque looking and you also do an, a so effective job of having them look at you the audience you know what i mean like almost like what are you doing here you're intruding like you know that that was incredibly effective too but i just wanted you to uh expand a little bit about what is what that the layers mean to you and how everything is getting sucked up vertically like what what that represents to you broadly mm -hmm. yeah well um i mean you kind of i guess you kind of described it in some ways but what it means is uh yeah the the life force the energy of of human beings and that's like a very simple way to put it but of, of their efforts of their awareness of their attention of their consciousness of their sovereignty of their agency of their free will um is siphoned into certain 
through various unconscious contracts, yeah. which uh, I'm seeing are very intelligently arranged, are siphoned because human beings have the gift of free will, and that's my philosophical stance and my view. Mm-hmm. Um, and this free will needs to be manipulated according to universal law. Um, it needs to be given willingly. And many people give it willingly, but not knowing wow, not yeah. they're doing so. Damn. And so this, you know, this, I'm not going to go into this too much, but again, my understanding is that that, that then um, alleviates the manipulators from any karmic backlash because it's free will being given. And so there's a lot of like very intelligent uh, ways to do that. And that's what we're seeing right now with this whole scenario in the world. But, um, and so, so all of this energy of the sentience of the divinity of every human being, which every human being, again, in my philosophical view, in my emerging experience is that we are aspects of, of the divine, uh, of expressed within a human, human being in a human form. Um, and so mm-hmm. that realization, uh, if that, if that is, is kept hidden, if that is, um, you know, forbidden to be looked at, if that cannot be realized by, by a, large group of human beings on the earth then they remain trapped within the illusions of the actual you know the matrix of this illusory fabric of uh consensual scripts that we run and then mm-hmm. instead of seeing reality we see representations and symbols of reality and we function based on like image and appearance instead of on essence and so um yeah the the you know the hypothesis here is that there is a certain form of intelligence that is uh, an apex predator in this sense, which mm-hmm. is a parasitic uh, predator. Now, it's parasitic because it can't show itself, because as soon as it's known, its, it, it's power decreases exponentially. So mm-hmm. its power lies in deception and in subterfuge and, and hiding, um, which is why I wanted to like, clearly show and point to it. Now, you know, what those beings are, I constantly get messages from people who, I understand their assumption that I probably have some special knowledge uh, <laughs> regarding that. Yeah. I, you know, so yeah. I, I, I don't, and I don't know that many, many people people do, um, but yeah. we have, I think, intelligent suppositions um, based on various conjectures on you know, certain evidence, certain other suppositions, and overall, it doesn't even have to be beings. Like, those atrophied uh, beings are also like parts of us. They're like the lowest part of us, that part which is so terrified of being alive, of surrendering mm-hmm. to, to the mystery of existence and, and being flooded by the light of it that it needs to control and manipulate. It needs to contract against existence. And it needs to siphon and parasitize uh, on the life force of others because it's so far removed from the light itself. <laughs> and so that's an aspect of each one of us, unless, of course, we purify and transmute it. So, um, you know, that's, God, this, I, I guess we could just do a podcast episode just on that because there are so <laughs> many dynamics within, within that little sphere. Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, you know, to sum it up, I'll just kind of repeat what I said earlier. It's the siphoning of free will uh, and sovereignty, really, of the human being um, through these contractual obligations. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and it, it is 
again, these beings are very deformed and grotesque looking. And it's like, even though they are siphoning up all of this energy and all of this quote unquote power, uh, they are very like, they're, they're pitiful in a certain kind of way. I mean, they just look hapless. And like you say, there's this force that cannot, it's, it's, uh, inherently parasitic. It cannot exist on its own. And that's a very, you know, I, I know that nature has lots of examples of parasitism, but it also has lots of examples of symbiosis. I mean, parasitism is, is only one way to go and it's not even the best way at all, you know? Mm. So there is a certain kind of weakness. Yeah. Um, and then I, I really like what you say about how, yeah, because the, the essence of, of our divine sparks is being intentionally obfuscated, uh, again, through very, very complex psychological war. Um, because of that, it's like, I don't know, I, I kind of lost my train of thought a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to come back to that idea because it was something about, oh, man, I wish I could remember. It'll come back to me. <laughs> um, I hope so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, the facsimile of of the divine. So rather than the thing itself, it has to be an uh, approximation of the thing itself. And hence why you mentioned everything is we we engage with each other via like topical symbols. And then it kind of like mm. ends there. And so, yeah, I, I had never really like thought of that before, how... In order for, for beings that have free will, if you want to manipulate them effectively, you have to give them the free will to willingly give up their sovereignty. And, uh, yeah, it's like this incredible smoke and, smoke and mirrors game. And in, in the film, there's a very pervasive image of the mask. And the mask is like kind of an unsettling smile, like a very like broad featured smiling kind of like theater mask almost and everyone is walking around with this mask and so behind the mask in the film these beings are like really depraved and yeah they almost look like they've had their life force like sucked out of them uh but then you're, they're all you know like there's a scene where it's like alcohol is involved and people going out and finding all these ways to basically pull the wool over their own eyes and uh yeah, it's as a, you know, I, I'm very open on the podcast that I was a alcoholic for many years. So I've been sober from alcohol for eight years now. And it's almost like my life is that there's two lives, like two existences. There's the existence that I had when I was alcoholic and then the existence that I've had since breaking free from that. And, you know, it's not dissimilar to the themes in the film because the, the word alcohol stems from al-kul, which is an Arabic word, and it means something like body devouring spirit mm -hmm. and the idea of like when you know you drink your your personality changes for me I would black out a lot but then and so then you wake up in the morning and your friends are like dude you remember last night and and it's like how could you have possibly acted in that way and and it's almost like with the alcohol at least you can point to the alcohol in that way There's, mm. it's like you know, thank, thank God for small blessings or whatever, at least you can point to be like, that's the thing that's fucking up my life. Um, at least, you know, one of the major aspects that's fucking up my life. But with this matrix, I mean, for lack of a better term, it really does describe it, that everyone is finds themselves enthralled by and, and entrapped in. It's like there's that unknowingness of like what it, almost like making us forget about our own divinity ourselves. And that's in that like freely giving it up aspect and mm -hmm. yeah man 
incredibly powerful um, symbology. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad too for it to have resonated with with people. And like you said earlier, I'm very glad that it's sort of. Uh, forget what words you use, but you said something like it. I don't know something about it grounding something that was within you, but now it brought coherence to it, and 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 there was some rehabilitating. Kind of like, yeah, and like a feeling of being perhaps even being like someone else understands things the way that I do. I've been yes. hearing that a lot, and it seems to be a really strong strain for many people, and that something indescribable within them, within their vision of what may be wrong around them, uh, feeling understood. Uh, in some way, it has been. It seems to have been kind of therapeutic um, for for some people, and I, I really, I'm very happy, very happy to hear that that's been one of the byproducts of the film. Absolutely, yeah. It, your film almost strikes me as like a, uh, it's like an antioxidant, and it's like just bouncing hmm. around in the collective, and it's you know either like you say, probably can, some people it's kind of waking up, other people it's waking up to the fact that like, oh, I guess these thoughts that I'm having aren't isolated to only me. And that in and of itself is incredibly powerful, bringing people together because there is strength in numbers, you know, and the more people that can kind of like wake up together, then we can help each other wake up. I really do believe that humans are, even just the way that we're built on an evolutionary perspective, we are really built for cooperation. So all this artifice and and tricks and mirrors and smoke it, and to make us feel like we are, in our own isolated box that you symbolize so well with the, the red sphere in the film. That's like you say, very in, intentional because these forces know that if enough people came together, we, we actually have the power. I know that's a little bit cliche, but it's very true. Oh. We're the ones supplying the fuel for, for this whole mess, you know? So the moment that we decide to put our resources our divine sacred resources into our own enrichment into the creation of art that's like a major piece of breaking free from from this trap and the other thing is too with with marketing in general the moment you become aware that you're being marketed to that makes you a lot harder person to like crack you know what i mean like if you're watching an ad like a Ford truck advertisement and you're like oh these assholes are just trying to get to buy me a Ford how ridiculous then the, it, it's not going to have that much effect on you if you're in like a hypnotic state and you're gorged on Cheetos and you're kind of just like your brain is like half dead and you're absorbing the Ford commercial that's when mm-hmm. you'll wake up the next day and be like Nabbit, uh, I kind of want a Ford F-150 <laughs> so it's like the, the moment that you become aware of, of the manipulation I think is that that severely weakens the position of the parasite. So I don't know. Do you have any mm-hmm. thoughts about that? Well, I have a thought that I, I actually do want an F one fifty. Those are nice trucks, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I legitimately see it as a utilitarian thing. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> sure you do, Lubomir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, beyond that, absolutely, one hundred percent, I agree with you. When you when you pull the veil away from the artifice and you see the mechanism, yeah, it can, doesn't really work on you. That's why, I mean, that's why we're seeing this incredible censorship. I don't think we've seen that in, in at this scale ever, um, yeah. in recorded history at least. Like, not even during the wars and stuff, um, I don't think we've seen this kind of censorship. And I think it's because so many human beings now, through mass communication and 
maybe a lot more, something I think is moving through human beings, something good. Um, mm. So many people are seeing the, the mechanisms of, of this absurdity of these, these pathetic cronies who are just clinging on to their depraved power, trying to keep people separated, sowing anger, division, hatred while preaching the opposite. Um, and infantilizing human beings, keeping them in fear, using shame, guilt, basically attacking all sources of low development within all of us, all of our traumatic and wounded spots. Right. And sub subverting those for their benefit. Like, it's it's so stupid, it's so nasty, and it's so pathetic, too. Um, so a lot of people are seeing through this, and a lot of intelligent people are breaking down these methods, like, in a genius way. There's a lot of smart people uh, out out there, you know, doing good work. And so these guys have to scramble because that's exactly the mechanism that's going on. Um, and, and a lot of people are also complicit in this, that they just can't handle seeing the reality because, unfortunately, they don't have the maturity and capacity to accommodate the implications of um, of allowing this knowledge to hit them. Like, yeah. the events orchestrated at, at a, such a level um for you know for goals that seem completely like just treacherous it's it's difficult for someone who has you know uh just been consuming the cheetos and waking up and buying a truck <laughs> like <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> yeah no it's and and i mean that it's interesting because seeing people from all strata of of society so very educated people seem to be quite susceptible to this stuff um and yeah, that's true. it's like like everyone is especially if you have if if people have tied their identity, their profession, uh and they benefit from uh the the consensual system that we're in, mm -hmm. if they have no self if they haven't developed a self outside of that that's grounded in the eternal essence of their presence here and now, if they haven't individuated enough to be able to stand up to the crowd and and know that what matters more is truth and virtue and right conduct, if that's not there, or at least the seed of it, then they have nothing to fall back on because any truth basically challenges and destroys the full framework to give them security. And they get security from fitting into this false system. And so they mm -hmm. need to protect this false system in order to survive psychologically. So they're kind of like unconscious victims of this whole thing. And a lot of those people happen to be in the establishment, and it's not a surprise, because who else can survive within the establishment? An honest person can't survive there. Right. A person Correct. with integrity can't survive there, nor do they have any interest in being there. And right. so it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how this thing, uh, in my opinion, it's going to start corroding more and more. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, there's a specific image in the film that really captures what you just described, and it's uh, one of the riot cops that is on the outside of the sphere, protecting it with the armies and the tanks and everything. You show, you kind of zoom into his face, and he just kind of looks like a typical kind of beefcake kind of guy, and then you flash cut to <clears throat> him standing in front of his suburban home with his family, you know, with a smile on his face, like everything's great. And yeah, that's that's like a very kind of, more clear example of what you're saying the that once you're bought in to the status quo as i say my podcast is dedicated partly to resisting the status quo and once you bought into that and you're even especially you're raising a family because of it you know what i mean and you love your kids and you don't want to put them at risk 
that's what you're like that subversion that you were saying is so powerful and effective because they can prey on your fear of like you don't want anything to happen to your family right like you better you know stay protecting this creepy sphere with these fucking agrigorgs inside (laughs) but um i I wanted to we're we're already at uh, an hour if you can believe it so i want to start to kind of bring the conversation to a close here i i could just talk to you all day but i do have to get to work and stuff and i'm sure you probably have some things you need to do too Mm -hmm. but I want you to expound on um, what you briefly alluded to, that there is something moving through humanity that is good. Uh, I don't even want to say anything more about it. Would you just expound on that, what you meant? Yeah, yeah. So I do think, I don't, uh, you know, I have private thoughts on some things, you know, some some things that I I don't really want to commit to publicly, uh, just because I want to say things that I can substantiate much more so i'll just say that um yeah i'm seeing like an impulse of of goodness that is that is moving through people something that is that gives meaning and purpose and something that is much more noble than the um repetitive going through the repetitions of this sort of a culture that that just cycles lower self impulses i think it's a i think it's a higher impulse Something that is beyond the, the fallen world of, of decay and impermanence. I think that we have uh, seen many, many prophecies from many traditions around the world about what potentially this time holds. Mm. And and I think uh, there's something valid about that. Um, I think it's a challenge right now. We're, we're in a situation, and uh, you know, I'm I'm supposing that we generally may see the current situation in a similar way. You know, we haven't actually spoken about it, but we're in a situation right now in which we are challenged to really, uh, it feels a little black and white in terms of moving into the right conduct of harmony, opening, of love, of strength, of courage and honesty, or moving into subservience, compliance, weakening, no free will, and, and an abdication of the individual moving into fear, and then moving even worse into this technological fetishism that's brought in by these high IQ traumatized human beings with big tech yeah. who are, have these uh, yeah, transhumanist uh, fetish wet dreams of, of um, controlling the life force and the organic and, and all that is alive by making it predictable through algorithms and uh, mechanical uh, surveillance and, and you know like all these things which are again just quite pathetic like technology yeah. can be beautiful but unfortunately right now it's in the hands of immature beings um, yeah. who are like who are playing with it so so what is moving through us is just that I think those people who see it have no option but to fully embrace uh, all that is good within them and live in more and more truth and shed all that is false because any complacency, any fence-sitting actually abdicates free will. And anyone mm. who is fence-sitting in the coming years uh, or worse complying will be subsumed in this wave of, of, of um, enforced behavior, thinking, feeling, and worse. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'll just say, like, something higher is moving through us, and that's, that's just what I'm seeing. To, and that is uh, manifesting to the degree that we open and surrender with deep presence and strength and groundedness to this form. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I'll share just a personal anecdote that complements what you just said. So uh, for me, I I value um, mythical language. So I, I enjoy mythical language. I don't shy away from it. And so I appreciate uh, angels and I communicate with angels. And um, when I have, so when I quit drinking, I was incredibly depressed because my whole social life, I'm not going to get on crazy tangent right now, but my whole social life was based around alcohol and drinking. All my friends were drinkers. So then when I, I couldn't be around them anymore. And so I lost my whole social life. And so it was at the same time that I was facing all my own shit that I had been repressing through the alcohol. I was also incredibly lonely and isolated feeling. And I went to some very, very deep depths of loneliness. And, you know, I had suicidal ideations and all this stuff. And the one thing that really like rescued me from that was going out by myself in nature, even in a city, just finding some place kind of on your own in a park or cemetery, anything, and communing with that higher power, that what you speak of as that good thread that is moving through humanity. That communicating with that intangible spiritual force was the only thing that I was able to kind of resolve my loneliness with because I felt on a very, and I, I'm not saying that I somehow became enlightened and then I never had to like go through this process again. It's a continuously unfolding process. But I, I realized in my moments of epiphany that I was never alone because you have all these spiritual forces constantly imbuing you and around you. And it's very easy, even in this, you know, fallen world <laughs> to appreciate a sunset, to appreciate clouds moving over a full moon. Um, I was going to ask you to, I don't know, you, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want, but for me, um, psychedelic substances have been very helpful in terms of cracking open that veil. And so, you know, there, that was just like such an uh, eye-opening and awakening experience for me. And um, so in that, that way, I guess I was, that's how I kind of earned my faith in something greater. It was through like a direct experience of it. And so that's, I feel so strongly that like each Part of this awakening process was to have these like personal transformative experiences. Like you're not going to go to a, a motivational talk and, and like, you know, absorb biosmosis, all that positivity. I mean, that might inspire you to do the work, but really it's, it's work you have to do on your own. In my opinion, that's been the only thing that that's worked. But no. What's up, you ferocious flamingos? We're going to get right back into this conversation with Lubomir Arsov, but first, a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of the Barbarian Noetics podcast is brought to you by a Chicago man named Michael Williams, who was wrongly accused and jailed since last August, so that's a year, solely on the false conclusions of newly installed AI technology powered by secret algorithms meant to detect gunshots. And of course, these are overwhelmingly situated in low-income neighborhoods. Uh, I'm not making this up. This is not science fiction. This is happening in the world as we speak. And this gentleman named Michael Williams was wrongfully uh, jailed because of it. I'm going to have the link in the description 
but reading a little bit from the Associated Press article. Williams was jailed last August, accused of killing a young man from the neighborhood who asked him for a ride during a night of unrest over police brutality in May. But the key evidence against Williams didn't come from an eyewitness or an informant. It came from a clip of noiseless security video showing a car driving through an intersection with a loud bang picked up by a network of surveillance microphones. Prosecutors said technology powered by a secret algorithm that analyzed noises detected by the sensors indicated Williams shot and killed the man. Williams' experience highlights the real-world impacts of society's growing reliance on algorithms to help make consequential decisions about many aspects of public life. Just a quick editorialize here, it's, I think that artificial intelligence is already kind of like steering the ship way more than we realize, just throwing that out there, like with how we're advertised to and a lot of the decisions we think we're making on our own, we're really actually just making decisions that have been programmed into us, it's pretty fucked up. Okay, anyways, continuing with the article. Um, so talking about the society's growing reliance on algorithms. Nowhere is this more apparent than in law enforcement, which has turned to technology companies like gunshot detection firm ShotSpotter to battle crime. ShotSpotter evidence has increasingly been admitted in court cases around the country, now totaling some 200. ShotSpotter's website says it's a leader in precision policing technology solutions. God damn if that's not fucking creepy sounding. A leader in precision, that'd be something Klaus Schwab would say. We will need leaders in precision policing and technology solutions that help stop gun violence by using sensors, algorithms, and artificial intelligence. Sounds great. To classify 14 million sounds in its proprietary database as gunshots or something else. But an Associated Press investigation, based on a review of thousands of internal documents, emails, presentations, and confidential contracts, along with interviews with dozens of public defenders in communities where ShotSpotter has been deployed, has identified a number of serious flaws in using ShotSpotter as evidentiary support for prosecutors. AP's investigation found the system can miss live gunfire right under its microphones, or misclassify the sounds of fireworks or cars backfiring as gunshots. Forensic reports prepared by ShotSpotter's employees have been used in court to improperly claim that a defendant shot at police, or to provide questionable counts of the number of shots allegedly fired by defendants. Judges in a number of these cases have thrown out the evidence. ShotSpotter's proprietary algorithms are the company's primary selling point, and it frequently touts the technology and marketing materials as virtually foolproof. But the company guards how its closed system works as a trade secret, a black box largely inscrutable to the public, jurors, and police oversight boards. And it was one such flawed, fucked-up algorithm that put this innocent man in jail, a 65-year-old man, in jail for a year. So anyways, this episode is brought to you by Michael Williams, and I'm glad that he's free now. I'm glad his name has been cleared, and I'm sorry that he had to go through that. And uh, this is a canary in a coal mine for all of us. So, you know, it always comes first for the low-income neighborhoods, for minorities, but it's going to come for everyone. So we all better wake the fuck up. All right, y'all, let's get back to the show. Peace.
that's worked for me. Um, do you have any like meditation practice or anything like that that you use to commune with this, this force of good? Yeah, I do. I just want to say nature. Yeah, absolutely agreed. It's extremely important. I, you know, I, I'm still living in the city, so my partner and I, we both go to, we are in nature every week and both her and I commune with, with nature and deepen our, our, um, our relationship with nature because the divine manifests itself through, through nature and it, there's absolutely. so much for us. It teaches us and that's why there's this real strong push within the unconscious force to separate humans from nature and yes. bind them to this technological closed loop. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, meditation, yeah, absolutely. So I have a daily practice in meditation. Um, I've gotten just back into daily uh, deep breathing. So I do conscious connected breath work uh, for about 15 minutes a day as well. Mm. And I've been... I've been working a lot with embodiment in the last five years, and that really accelerated my, my being, my state of being, and by embodiment. You know, it's kind of a buzzword that has been for the last three or four years. Uh, I'll give you my sense uh, of what embodiment is, and that mm -hmm. is uh, attuning deeply into the felt sensation of the body, building, bringing consciousness into every aspect of the body in this divine vessel, because the body is an unconscious feedback loop. I mean, it's a, it's a feedback, uh, feedback mechanism because it gives us immediately the, uh, parts of our own consciousness that are inaccessible in the form of numbness, um, discomforts and other parts within our body that we dare not tread because trauma and wounding stay there. So in right, the act right. of bringing consciousness and light to those areas and bless and kindness and befriending those areas and inviting them back into the wholeness of the self, we are reclaiming and redeeming bit by bit our entire being. And so our body on a physical level is our tool to show us where we may be stagnating and not occupying our bodies. So the mm. more we sensitize, the more we visit and revisit these exiled areas of unconsciousness, we start bringing more and more into uh, our, our soul in a way into our body. And the more grounded we are in the body, more in tune we are with our intuition. We know when we are deceived and we are, when we are in truth. Our feelings are felt in our body. So the more we can tune into the body, the more we can start being in tune with the feelings and what they show us mm -hmm. and our emotions. Whether right or wrong, we can be masters of our experience as opposed to be at the mercy of it. So this embodiment process is something I try to do whenever I am aware of it, of being in my body, feeling my body, whether I walk down the street or in the forest or I'm with family, whenever I can, I tune into like relaxation and breathing deeply and really, um, yeah, there's ever, you know, things come up like fear and anxieties, embracing that as a, as a warrior would go into it and, and create the space around that and feel it as it is so that mm -hmm. it can then completely transform and you know seeing it fully and honestly and being there as a as a caring parent for something that is aberrant within us you know instead of um, locking it away with um strategies that will just keep pushing it away right and that's mm -hmm. those are that's where like addictions come from and like or overachieving or neurotic like um hustling and entrepreneurship <laughs> all these things are so right to avoid this right? rising and grinding <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. So that's in general. That's those are kind of like the basic practices that I that I do. 
Awesome. And um, in the the film ends on a very, uh, I would say, uplifting note. And um, one image that that always really strikes me is the the white bird. There's like this kind of almost like half insubstantiated, almost spirit bird that emerges as all the edifices that we've been describing, the cubes of isolation, they all break apart. Even the skyscrapers themselves like break apart. Everything gets kind of blown out even to a greater degree than in the, the first part of the film. And this white bird emerges uh, from it. Could you expound? I think you kind of have already in many ways, but is, is there anything you'd like to say about that, that white bird and what that represents? Mm-hmm. So all these structures that are collapsing, they're the structures and systems that have up until now given given us comfort and a certain um, stability within our perception of reality. So they have, they have had a function within our conscious evolution, but they're outdated and now they have become a burden. And so they represent the inner structures of thought, behavior, and framing of reality as, and in addition to out, outward structures of institutions of corrupt uh, clogged up institutions that no longer serve humanity but really um, burden it. And so as all these illusions break down, which again I think we are entering that to some degree right now within our world consciousness, as those break down and the um, the, the actual lower self is, is faced, the inner shadow is faced, the social mask or the persona is faced and dissolved, and when more and more of the real true self emerges, that's when the phoenix rises from the ashes of all the old systems collectively and individually of the dead shell. So there's that resurrection, this classical resurrection that we know uh, is an aspect of world culture, of the mythical world culture, the resurrection in which the, the material um, earthbound self dies. And it offers, you know, if there was a, a, a necessary maturing of that, a realization of what the ego is. Uh, and, and then, and I don't mean ego in Jungian ways, I mean it more like in an Eastern way. So, and then letting go of the ego, shedding, sort of like shedding that cloak of illusion and within our, uh, natural, deep, powerful self, we rise up like a phoenix from the ashes mm-hmm. into birth, birthing the new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really beautifully put. Um, so before I let you go, Lubomir, um, I just want to ask, what's next for you artistically? Um, are you, you know, are you in between projects right now? Do you have anything kind of in the works? I know you might not be able to talk about all of it, but um, what's next mm-hmm. for you creatively and artistically? Yeah, so right now I'm working on a short film. It's part of an anth- animated anthology based on some Russian folk tales. Um, mm-hmm. I have, I'm right directing a 15 minute short film that, uh, has to do with virtual reality, uh, social credit score. So oh, wow. And a sort of great reset dystopia. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm working some of these themes out in like what, uh, virtual reality is and how, how it can, uh, do potential soul possessions. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. I, I don't know yet. So I'm working with some good people on it. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know when that will be out. It's not up to me. This is something that I'm working with this team on. And then it's, it's entirely up to them when and how it's going to be released. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I'm looking at something 
more substantial and bigger to do like uh, after that and we'll see we'll see how that turns out there isn't much I can say about it but if it happens unfortunately it's going to be years before it <laughs> comes out uh, <laughs> we're going to have to be patient I'm I, I'm very very excited for that next short film I cannot wait to see it and to see how you kind of like put into images those ideas because um, yeah like just like you I'm I'm also kind of watching this all unfold and it's you know yeah it's it's a real process to be kind of like it's almost like a slow motion car crash in so many ways but then <laughs> you don't <laughs> you don't want to just gawk at it you know what I mean you have to like live your life and that's where for me like art and creativity and like connecting like this conversation you know what I mean like that's the fuel that that kind of feeds me to fight through it and yeah we 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 are we do have a lot of allies. Um, I believe we have allies in the physical and the immaterial and spiritual realm. So there are there's resources there. You know they they're a little more subtle, but um, I really do believe they're accessible to everybody. Um, really quick, you mentioned that you do a type of breath work. Would you just talk about that a, a little bit? Yeah, so I do two types of breath work. One is uh, bioenergetics, and I've studied a lot of Alexander Lowen's works. Uh, he was a student of Wilhelm Reich. And bioenergetics has a type of like standing um, with your arms spread open type of breathing that really works with the fascia and, and the inner musculature through tremors and bringing breath deep within. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. But what I mentioned uh, earlier is what I'm doing now predominantly, which is uh, it's something called conscious connected breath. But you may also know it as holotropic breath work, uh, which mm-hmm. was developed by Stanislav Grof, um, who used to do LSD studies, and he developed that with his wife after LSD was banned um, in the 60s or 70s, late 60s, I think, as a research substance. Anyhow, um, it's basically connected breath is you don't you you keep your breath uh, in and out breath connected, so there's no actual pausing in between them. You breathe through the mouth as deeply as you can. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the gist of it is you can just play some, it's great to play some great tribal or any really music that amps up the, the atmosphere and like going in for feeling, being mindful of the body. It could be gentle, but it's, it's great for it to speed up and to allow a lot more air slash spirit to enter the body and start mm-hmm. unlocking aspects that were hitherto unconscious. So there can be a lot of unpleasantness, a lot of resistance about just like getting up and like, I'm not going to do this. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. In general, the sessions are from like 45 minutes to an hour, but uh, I do for practical purposes. I just do 15 minutes every day right now. And that's mm. enough to get a lot of uh, life force within me and unlock some things. And this, like everything else, is something that compounds. And, you know, it's as we now know, it's best to do something for five minutes every day than like do five hours once a week, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's about incremental everyday habits that really create big changes. Absolutely. Um, that, yeah, does that describe sort of, does that fulfilling enough for other descriptions? Absolutely. Yeah, I just, I always want to give listeners threads they can pull on for their own uh, self-development practices. And um, yeah, I really like that. I'm going to look into the holotropic breathwork. That sounds really, really interesting. Um, before I let you go, uh, do you want to plug any, you know, any projects you're working on, any socials you want people to know about, anything that you want to direct my listeners to? 
Uh, well, I'm, I've been quite an inactive, but I will start posting on Twitter. I have a new, newly uh, created Twitter account, so you can just find me at, at Lubomir Arsov. Same handle on Instagram, which, I, again, I'm hoping to post on more. I, I am developing some NFTs um, of just single frames of uh, in shadow, so there's going to be a collection. Nice. Yeah. Right now, there's a collection of uh, they'll be dropping biweekly or so of uh, frames and, and gifts from in shadow. So uh, those will be available for anyone who wants to support the work and any future works by me, and also to own a part of. Um, it's not really owning a part of the film, but it's owning something of it. Which you know, they're one. They're single editions, so that's available yeah. on superrare.com. Okay. And you can find me there. Um, that's really it, though, uh, for now. Yeah. No. That's a great uh, idea to, to make NFTs. I think that's going to work really well for you. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's see. I'm, I mean, it's interesting for me because uh, there's, there's certain thoughts I have about the digital landscape, but I'm experimenting right now with this emerging sphere of, of entrepreneurship, so we'll see. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm connected with the spirit of the Raven, and Ravens are all about survival. And so it's like when when in dealing with this like hyper material reality, we do need to support ourselves so that we can continue to put good work out into the world. And my thing with NFTs is I feel like they're just being used to launder money anyway. So you might as well make a cool one that <laughs> someone can launder their money through yours. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why not you? You know what I mean? And I imagine yeah. that, uh, your film has like probably like real real cult following and that's going to expand out i just see it expanding out exponentially so um i think that's a really good idea yeah thank um, you brother yeah well it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you i just want to thank you again for sharing your insights and what a treat to be able to actually speak with the creator himself so thank you very much and um i just really appreciate it and yeah keep keep fighting the good fight man Thank you, brother. And Colin, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure as well. I really, really enjoyed this last hour and a half speaking to you. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And I will let you know when the episode goes live. Sounds good. All the best. All right. You take care. Bye. So I've taken to looking up ancient copies of the Daily Worker, which was the official newspaper of the Communist Party USA, back when the US did have a pretty potent Communist Party. One of the reasons why adequate pressure was put on FDR for the New Deal, even though the New Deal was so flawed, but it wouldn't have happened without pressure from the legitimate communist and socialist parties that this country had. 
before the uh, systematic obliteration of the left wing of the political spectrum during the Cold War, culminating in the nightmarish Reagan years. And here we are. Anyways, getting beside myself. <laughs> so I'm looking up these old uh, papers. It's so fascinating. I decided to look up, uh, they're kind of hard to find. I'll have the link in the description. I found this one on Marxist.org. But um, I decided to look up days like in this week, you know, like the year I chose was 1925. And this is from a paper, August 26th of 1925. And just to put that in perspective, that will be 96 years ago tomorrow. I'm recording right now on Wednesday, uh, the 25th. So yeah, it'll be 96 years ago tomorrow. And um, I was just perusing through these articles. It's a, it's really interesting to read these. They're in the microfilm, so I have to like zoom in. It's like literally images of the old newspaper. First off, very impressive newspaper. Like serious, they they put it out every day, and it's legitimate. Like it's many many articles. There's no bullshit advertisements. A lot of like really really shoe leather journalism and it's really internationalist too in its focus which is so interesting anyway so i stumbled on this article called mormon church is in alliance with the bosses <laughs> kumintang meet members at communist meeting again this is august 26 1925 salt lake city the ctl rat rattlers after having been delayed by washouts Hold on, I need to zoom in a little bit more here. The CTL Rattlers, have, after having been delayed by washouts, ruts afoot, deep numerous alkali patches, and corrugated rock sections of the celebrated Lincoln Highway, finally rumbled into the Mormon capital too late for the meeting arranged for last Wednesday night. They were therefore compelled to give up the Ogden date and hold the meeting here on Thursday night instead. The local comrades had outdone themselves in arranging what would have been an excellent meeting in Pioneer Park, which had been secured together with the use of the grandstand. It had been necessary to present a petition requesting its use to the city fathers. It's also interesting just to think about that, like, this was, like, way back print, printing press, like, done with typewriters and the printing press and stuff. It's... It's so much more labor intensive. You know, we take, we take it for granted how easy it is now to distribute information. There was a lot more to it in 1925, which makes the kind of cohesion and breadth of this paper so impressive. Um, anyways, these gentlemen were very, I'm continuing with the article now. These gentlemen were very much distressed when the petition was presented. They eyed the two women comrades who were present to see that it was acted upon with a good deal of suspicion. The meeting Thursday night was held on a few moments notice at the labor temple. The comrades considered this meeting to be especially good. It was most gratifying to find members of the Kuomintang present. These Chinese promised to work in cooperation with the workers party group here in the future and were highly satisfied with the communist effort to unite the American workers in a demand to withdraw American troops from China immediately. A resolution to this effect was adopted by the meeting unanimously. The Mormon church has a stranglehold on this state. Its organization is self-sufficing for the needs of its members, provision being made for controlling the lives of its adherents in every possible way. The church here is in very close alliance with the biggest open shop interests of the country. 
While it professes neutrality in labor disputes and ostensibly allows its members full freedom to take an active part in the labor movement, facts show that whenever an industrial struggle arises, the power of the church, like the power of all other churches, is at the disposal of the ruling class. Mormons with Big Biz a good illustration of this hypocrisy of the Mormon church is shown by its attitude during the coach cleaners strike. The strike call had gone out and the women quit work. Thereupon, the bishop informed the strikers that it was their duty to remain at work in order to protect the church's interests. The church is a large stakeholder in one of the railroads against which the strike was carried on. The church has even been known to go outside of the city and recruit the, quote, faithful to break a strike in the city. The Rattlers have been compelled to change their route somewhat, leaving out Rock Springs and Cheyenne and rat rattling instead directly to Denver for the mass meeting there Sunday night. Anyways, pretty interesting. Like, just how serious the organization was, how, like, the the lifting of people's political education, you know, like is kind of complex topics I feel were more easily digested by more people back then. And yeah, just so interesting to think about how the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know, like they were fighting the, the big railroad bosses in the 20s and now we're fighting the informational railroad bosses <laughs> here in 2021. So the struggle continues it changes it adapts but the fire still burns as long as there's human beings on earth that fire for freedom that fire for organization for uniting as one we'll be there all right that's it for tonight everybody i'm about to eat myself some salad peace Alright y'all, what's up? You've made it to the end of the show and I just got one thing to say to you right now. Wow, I, I knew that I would. I feel good. Knew that I would. So good, so good. I got you. That's right, uh, uh. end of the show, I love my patrons, shake, 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 I got the rattle too, all right, there we go. That gets us in the right frame of mind to end this show. Coming at you from a hot Saturday. And uh, we're going to end it with an oldie but a goodie. I haven't read from this book in a while today. It's called The Pregnant Virgin, A Process of Psychological Transformation by Marion Goodman, who's a psychoanalyst. And um, I just felt compelled to read from, from this book today. This is towards the end of the book. Um, the chapter is Beloved Enemy. So she writes, My wise old Irish analyst, Dr. E. A. Bennett, asked me in every session, why did you go to India? 
Each time I tried to tell him, he nodded his head silently. I knew my answer was inadequate. Finally, in desperation, I said to him, Dr. Bennett, you must be going senile. You ask me that question every time I come here. And every time you give me a different answer, he replied. Then he settled back in his chair and told me a story. When I was a brigadier in the army in India, he said, we had a hard time with some soldiers. They didn't want to fight. They put seeds in their eyes, which made them blind, and then they were sent home. They'd rather go home blind than fight. You should think about that. I've been taking seeds out of my eyes for 16 years, and I'm still taking them out. Integrating an initiation can become a lifetime task. And while most of it remains in the secret mysteries of the individual, some of it belongs to the universal soul that is striving to become conscious in each one of us. What took me to India was illusion. Why I went was real. India was my journey to my own India, my own dark underworld. Like whales in the sea, people live in the only world they have ever known, birth, copulation, and death. Unless there is a brutal severance from the sea, they don't know they are in the sea or what the sea is. India bisected my life. Before I went, I saw with my eyes. When I returned, I saw through my eyes. My naive Persephone, who had lived in the security of Mother Church, Mother Society, Mother School, eventually heard the question distilled from her lips. Who am I? Drawn by a romantic vision of the Orient, I had set out on some sentimental search for what was, in fact, a parody of the moon goddess. There followed the inevitable psychic rape in the teeming streets of India. The ground opened beneath my feet. What began as an intellectual question instantly became a real question when I had to say, yes, I am alone. The sword that American woman struck into my heart with the word alone was the sword thrust that killed the dependent child and opened the door for the birth of the woman. No longer could I rest in the comfort of other people's images of who I was, Parson's daughter, professor's wife, student's teacher. No longer could I be trapped in the small frame of wanting to be thin, stepping on the scales each morning and measuring the success of my life by whether I had gained or lost a few ounces. No longer could I fool myself that life would be what I wanted it to be. If only I could discard this body for another. If only I could pretend this body did not exist. If only I could get rid of this gluttonous, lusty, fiery fiend I lugged around. <laughs> I resonate with that. That illusion had protected me from looking at who I was and what I was meant to do with my life. Gone was the fantasy of escaping into easeful death. Gone was the illusion of being able to control my destiny. Gone too were the false images of my parents, images I had created as a child and blamed for what had happened or not happened to me. Stripped of my stone gods, I could forgive. Dead too was the romantic dreamer who created her fantasy world through language. So long as I had stayed in my mind, I had been able to keep the mystery of my own reality buried in my body. Having never differentiated body and soul, I escaped my emptiness through eating or not eating, confusing the figurative and literal worlds. Faced with actual death, I had to, cho I had to choose, die or live, either accept my human condition, love my soul and my body and move into life, or reject my human destiny, go with the spirit and die. 
Without language, I learned to hear the Indians with my heart as I knew they heard me. And that great gift of India, that silence, taught me to hear my soul. I had first to face my own hatred. And in that confrontation, the sacrificial blood flowed. The blood that spurted out through the word alone opened my heart to the faithful creature whom I had abandoned on the floor, the creature whose loyalty put my hatred to shame. Through the love that rushed out of my instinctual being, personified in my little terrier, Duff, my feminine self was reborn, and she recognized that she could no longer kick her body. This was her home so long as she was a human being on this earth. And the soul that was crying to her in its forsaken and foul condition on the floor was her soul, her core of being at the center of matter, crying to be claimed, allowed to grow and ultimately expressed. When there was no mother to care for me, another mother cared for me, a mother full of compassion for this faithful creature who loved me with a silent trusting devotion that I had betrayed. I cried. I rebaptized my evil as the best that was in me. I washed the dried vomit from her hair and the excrement from her limbs. India forced me to look into the terrible face of the goddess, and that look put me in touch with a profound level of loving. Instead of blinding myself to what it means to be human, instead of cringing from the filth and poverty and pain in the street, I was able to experience the horror and at the same time love the dignity of the soul that clung to life. The rose in my heart began to open. The word that had been word only in my head became flesh. And that flesh was as metaphysical as the spirit. As it lay in its chrysalis, it dropped back into its own world of symbols, resonating with their images and vibrant tones. Body, soul, and spirit were thrown together into the fire, and there they reconnected with their inner journey, with the transformative images shaping my life, making me who I am. Without them, my tongue spoke, but my voice was not authentic. And what I discovered was a soul that had never lost touch with Sophia, had never forgotten what stillness is, had never forgotten the rhythm of the slow, irrevocable heartbeat of the earth. India lives in the goddess as I had lived in her as a child, as every child lives in her. Frogs dappled with dew, bodies burning on the Benares ghats, butterflies on a kitchen curtain, candles that make time stand still. Her playfulness, her detachment, her fury, her love of all things, her teeming virginal world that contains the seeds of all possibilities, these I had accepted as a child. I saw, too, the butterfly that I once was, dancing from blossom to blossom in the noon of my imagination, dancing free in the noon of her love, unpossessed and unpossessing. I saw the winged creature metamorphosed into a caterpillar, heavy with duty and responsibility, scarcely remembering her affinity for wings. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, the winter came and some compass tugged her to the east. There the butterfly prematurely escaped, and from the ceiling in the Ashoka, she looked down on the dying caterpillar and took compassion. For 16 years, she had been explaining to the caterpillar why she is a caterpillar. Let go, she says, let it be. And now that the caterpillar is beginning to understand, she is free to become a butterfly. She knows what it means to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. 
through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for because not looked for but heard half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea quick now here now always a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything who was born of that union of opposites consciousness uniting with unconscious spirit uniting with matter seven years i was pregnant with myself the following dream began the journey down the birth canal i'm going to finish up with her dream and then we'll bring this episode to a close I am standing barefoot on desert sand in India wearing a peach chiffon dress and veil. It is noon. What looks like an ancient astrological clock sits horizontally on a wooden framework. Its axle has a hole that goes deep into the ground. Two huge wheels, one red and gold, one blue and silver, mark its circumference. The red wheel turns clockwise on the inside. The larger blue one turns counterclockwise on the outside. The houses of the zodiac are clearly traced in the sand. A man who loves me and whom I love stands beside the red wheel. This is his wheel, mine is the blue. Green foliage grows in the first two astrological houses. My task is to dance among the spokes of the wheels, a dangerous task because sharp knives radiate from the central axle. I am to dance until the wheels move synchronistically. A huge crowd of natives stands chanting, ready to shift the key of their chant into harmony with the music of the spheres when the wheels move. The music begins. I dance very cautiously at first. Then my body becomes the music. I no longer fear the knives. I am being danced. Suddenly the natives in one voice shift key. Music fills the heavens. The wheels move. Green shoots and fountains springs. Green shoots and a fountain spring up in the Zodiac's third house. I stop right... <laughs> it's good I'm ending now because I'm having trouble with my words. I stop right in front of the man who takes off my veil and says, Now I know your name. God damn, Marion Woodman throwing down. Some psychoanalytic wisdom from the pregnant virgin. Um, thanks again so much, y'all, for listening to the show, for supporting me. I appreciate you so much. And uh, as always, I can really use just one little dollar a month. Just go to patreon.com slash noetics. And for just one dollar a month, you can help me stay on the air and help me achieve my dreams. So, and I will be eternally grateful. And you win a dream interpretation when you sign up and a haiku and all sorts of other goodies. So patreon.com slash noetics. If you have not done so already, please rate, review, and subscribe. So it's come to my attention recently that not all platforms allow you to leave reviews. So Apple Podcasts does. So if you have Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Apple person, please uh, leave, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Some people don't realize that they have it on their phone, their iPhone already. The podcast app is like a little, it's like a little circle with other circles. It kind of looks like a broadcasting. I think it's blue, but I think it should say podcast underneath. All iPhones come with the podcast app. And if you open that up and then you search for Barbarian Noetics or 
Conan Tanner. My podcast will come up and then you can give the five stars and leave a review. Um, on other platforms, you cannot necessarily leave a review, but I think you can leave five stars on almost all of them. And I believe CastBox, CastBox, you can leave a review. So I use CastBox. Uh, Dr. Sylvie Salinger uses CastBox. A lot of people like CastBox. So if you're wondering, you know, which platform should I get into if you've been listening off the Buzzsprout site or whatever, go ahead and download CastBox because then you can leave a review. And as always, the most important thing, of course, is just to spread the word and tell a friend about the BMP. If you have someone who's interested in the elevation of the human spirit, someone who's interested in international geopolitics, someone who's interested in addiction, recovering from addiction, alcoholism and sobriety from alcohol, any of those topics, artificial intelligence, any of those topics, um, mediumship, connecting with angels, you can suggest an episode that might resonate with them. And uh, other than that, everyone, I just I just want to send love and good vibes to you. And uh, I feel very kind of raw this morning for some reason. Uh, very, I'd say present, but also quite raw. So I don't know what I why I brought that up, other than to say that I, uh, you know, I don't know. Every day is like such a journey, and there's ups and downs. And I, like, you're not alone, I guess. And I. I'm there with you and I think if we support each other and realize that a lot of what we feel is universal, the peaks and valleys of life, the episodes of depression and hopelessness that's so easy to fall into. I was reading about the climate and you know the latest IPCC report that came out and um, it's, it's hard to integrate. <laughs> you know, if, if you get stuck on a certain aspect of it, like stuck on attachment to like quote unquote how things are or attachment to some you know vision of the future it's like the the earth is changing and humans are changing we're evolving we're evolving new arteries i read an article about that today so nothing is permanent this too shall pass the good times pass the not so good times pass and we just try to stay balanced and roll with it kind of like we're surfing and uh all right, I've rambled enough for today's episode. So much love, everybody. And until next week, be good to yourselves and be excellent to each other. I send good vibes, lion's roars, and quasar radiation to you. All right, peace. Much love.
Yeah. Mm-hmm.